Well, hello. This is the Andrew Lake podcast. And today I'd like to talk about integral music practice. And on a personal note, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Edda Bowlby. Edda Bowlby is a friend of mine who's a musician, and I've had many conversations with him over the years about music and music practice. So this one's for you, Edda Bowlby. So, integral music practice is a comprehensive overview. We're going to be going through a whole bunch of things that you can use as ideas to improve your music practice, to be more efficient, more motivated, and just generally more in touch with what it means to become a better musician and have a deeper connection with music. The framework that I'm using is integral theory. So we're taking integral theory and using that to talk about music practice. We're not going to cover every aspect of integral theory. We're only going to talk about the things that are most practically relevant to musicians. So there's more of an emphasis on psychology, shadow work, and personal development on the individual level, rather than understanding collectives and bigger picture sorts of things. Although we do get a little bit into that as well. If you're not familiar with integral theory at all, I highly recommend you do a little bit of research. I have an episode on it, and there's lots of information out there about integral theory. It's basically the best philosophical framework that you can use for understanding life and understanding your psychology. So integral theory is highly recommended. You don't really need an integral background or understanding of integral theory to understand what I'm talking about today because it will come out in the dribs and drabs of advice and ideas that I can give to you for your music practice. So I'm going to try and be comprehensive and also foundational. So take this all in and then you'll be able to mish and mash it with your own ideas. Some of these things will already be familiar to you and I hope some things will be a new introduction to you or a new way of thinking about it, a better way of thinking about it, which can help you with your music practice. So there are a few things which are adaptable. Some things are able to be manipulated to your own tastes, to your own likings. And some things are critical, some things you must do for an integral music practice. There is such thing as a not integral music practice. Maybe you are already doing a bit of an integral practice and you just need to have that little bit of extra clarity to get you into the next level. Maybe you're a long way off and this episode, this conversation will reveal a lot of gaps in your practice, in which case you will have a lot of work to do. But starting out straight up, there is one critical thing that you must do, and this is non-negotiable. It is compulsory. That is meditation. The evidence is unanimous. Meditation is critical. Even if you're a musician or not, you must have a daily meditation practice. This means every day, from anywhere between 20 minutes to an hour, you must sit down with your eyes closed in a quiet corner of your room and meditate. Be consistent. It doesn't help to do a lot one day and then skip a few days, just as it is with music practice. 
A little each day, every day is key. There is a wealth of information on the internet about meditation, so it doesn't take much to gain a basic understanding. If you're doing two hours of music practice every day, cut that down to an hour and a half and do 30 minutes of meditation. Meditation helps with your psychology, your emotions, your bodily awareness, your concentration. It feeds into everything. Even if you're not a musician, like I said, meditation is critical for life. The science is overwhelming. It is just abundantly clear that the only way, the fast track way to progress is to have a meditation practice. So let me go through four basic meditation systems or techniques. These are basically just the simple introduction to ideas that you can use for meditation. You can find out about others and find ones that suit you, but here are a few of the basic ones. First of all, you've got guided meditation. So there are guided meditations on many websites and apps for your phone, that sort of thing. Guided meditations are an easy place to start because all you have to do is follow the instructions. It's simply a matter of doing as the guide says. If you don't think of yourself as too smart or too big to take advice from a teacher or a guide, then you can just sit down on your pillow and do as the guided meditation says. It's really that simple. Another form of meditation is concentration. So this is a specific kind of meditation. The key to developing concentration is to find one object and focus all your attention on it to the exclusion of everything else. And you can find a simple object. It might be something like the breath, the pressure of your thumb and your index finger, a humming sound, or an object in the room like a candle or a flower. Note that you will lose concentration many times as you practice this. Don't be discouraged when you're starting out doing this. With more practice, your concentration will improve. And in fact, it's the losing of concentration, noticing that you've lost it, and then coming back to the object of your concentration that's the thing that we call a rep or that's like lifting the weight that's one part of the exercise and you need to have repetitions of it you need to build it it's like building a muscle concentration will improve your music practice so much because really the thing that makes your music practice ineffective is your lack of attention to what is happening when you're doing it. You retain more information when you have a deeper concentration. So another form of meditation is called the body scan. So you take your point of attention and you scan it around your body. You move systematically and each point that you move over, you relax or you let go of. You can start at the top of your head and work your way down through to the tips of your toes or vice versa. The slower you go and the more detail you have, the more awareness you will gain. This process can bring pain into awareness, which will lead to releasing of pain or the relinquishing of pain or a stronger relationship to pain. It's also a process that will open you up to feelings of bliss and ecstasy if you develop it to a high degree. And all experiences are nested in the body, so it's the doorway into understanding how you feel. 
So the body scan is another foundational form of meditation. And the last form of meditation I'll introduce you to is called strong determined sitting. Strong determined sitting is the practice of sitting as still as a statue, no matter what. This means if you get an itchy nose or a cramp in your leg, too bad. No moving is allowed until the end of your meditation session. So you should be doing these on a timer. You should have a, a stopwatch or something that is putting a defined time limit on your meditation. So 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. The strong determined sitting technique turns up the volume of the internal world and many glorious and terrifying things can happen. It can also be used in addition to other kinds of meditation. So you can do strong determined sitting with the body scan, or you can do strong determined sitting with guided meditation. So this is great for developing strength of will and a sense of discipline. And discipline is a part of music practice. It's not the whole thing. It shouldn't entirely be central, but discipline is a component of a integral music practice. So I hope I've rammed that point home hard enough. You have to be meditating every day. The next big component of integral music practice that I'd like to talk about is what I call body awareness and body ability. So your actions and your music performance is nested in your body. You use your body to perform music. So you want to be developing your body ability for strength, flexibility, endurance, coordination, balance, and agility. Music practice alone is too many things, too complicated to be your only exercise in developing bodily mastery. Getting a sore back, getting tired, getting cramps, getting RSI, getting strained muscles, getting fatigue. These are the things that hold musicians back the most. You might have a perfectly good motivation and willingness to do music practice, but if you have a pain in your neck or a cramp somewhere that is excruciating, it's not going to happen. Also, if you are practicing too much and you're over-practicing, you can be wearing out your body rather than building skills. So bodily awareness and bodily ability is working on reconciling that. You need to be able to recognize when you are improving and recognizing when you are fatigued. And that comes back to the body scan and meditation. But bodily ability is more about the external world. So here are a few things you can do in addition. So you have to do this in addition to your music practice to develop your body. So you can do weights at the gym, running or other cardio-based activities, sports. You can do yoga. You can learn that on the internet or join a class. Tai Chi, Feldenkrais Method, the Alexander Technique. These sorts of things you can do either daily or a couple of times a week separate to your music practice in order to improve your ability to sit at your instrument and practice. Another big one for music is dancing. So dance is fundamental to human nature, like laughing and crying. 
Everybody has had the instinct to dance at least once in his or her life. For some people, (laughs) we may need to go back to early childhood, but who am I to judge? If you are a musician, there's a good chance you understand dancing quite well. Realize that when you perform music, you are dancing. And indeed, life is a dance, if we want to put it into a bigger picture. Some people are a bit twisted, some have an elegance, and some people have a grace about them. This is something that can be developed with practice. You will have more detail in the way you move your body, more symmetry, and more efficiency in your actions if you develop your dancing. It is not something intellectual or theoretical, although it can be made to be those things. In modern dance, it can be intellectual and theoretical. It's more spontaneous, though, and it's like a, it's a feminine thing. Dancing is about the feeling and letting go of hidden reservations that are difficult to put into words. The best kind of dancing is when you let it all hang out and nothing holds you back, just like a peak performance when you're doing a music performance. It's true authenticity. You can do some dancing when you're seeing your favorite band, if it's that kind of dance music. Not all music is dance music. You can even do dancing at home. If this is your method of choice for developing bodily awareness, just make sure it's a regular thing that you do. Dance will help with your fitness, your balance, your flexibility, and all those sorts of things that bodily awareness is all about. So, if you are practicing music two hours a day, you actually want to cut that back 30 minutes for meditation, and you probably want to cut it back a further 10 minutes for body development. If you're doing it every day, you might do half an hour every couple of days. The next thing I want to talk about is your practice diary. So this is something you'll keep next to your instrument in your place of practice. And you're going to write in this to track and understand and cognize your music practice. So go out and buy a book if you haven't already. And this is a non-music manuscript book. So there's going to be no music written in this only words. It's all about your psychology. It's all about your concepts, your symbols of music practice. So no music notation goes in this book. It's only words. And you can write out something like meditation. These are the four kinds of meditation, guided meditation, concentration, body scan, strong determined sitting. And then you can write out what you're doing for body development. You might say, do 20 push-ups and 50 sit-ups and five squats a day, that sort of thing, or whatever it is that you want to do. But you write it down in this book. And a lot of the ideas that I'll be sharing with you for the rest of this conversation, you can write down and develop in your own way in this book. Now, a quick point on discipline. Don't make this book a rigid thing. Don't make it a really hard set in stone thing. Think of it more like ideas that you can brainstorm and you can come back to and you can try at different times. Some people do music practice where they write down exactly how long they practice for and exactly what they practice and they write down the time of day and they write down the date and they write down a full journal log on it. That's, that's a very rigid structure. Not very many musicians are like that. If you're raised in a very strict sort of family upbringing and your music has come to you from a hierarchy or like a 
it's been beaten over the head into you, like you've been oppressed by music practice, like your parents forced you to do it, then, well, maybe you'll feel like you need to rebel a bit, but you might be conditioned in such a way that you feel like you want a structure, you want a rigid structure. And in that case, that's fine. Use it as a, as a practice log. But I would prefer to make it more like a brainstorming idea which changes and flows. So, the next component of integral theory that we can use for our integral music practice is the multiple forms of intelligence. In a simplistic way of thinking, intelligence is one thing that needs to be developed. It's only one central thing. We just say intelligence is one thing. The psychologist Howard Gardner developed what we call the multiple intelligences theory based on his observations of the differences between the ways people learn. As it turns out, there are many forms of intelligence. The integral approach is to develop them all. We call each kind of intelligence a line of development and they all develop at relatively independent rates. This explains why some people are good at some things and not at others and they can have deficiencies which are very obvious and hurtful and yet be excellent at other things. By doing intelligence cross-training, the lines of development grow and progress much quicker. So you want to be working on a few different forms of intelligence. Now, there are many forms of intelligence, but I'll go through some of the ones which are specific to music practice. First of all, we've got cognitive intelligence. So this is all about words and reading and comprehension and your psychology, your ability to articulate things. So your practice diary and your brainstorming of ideas is your form of improving your cognitive intelligence. It's like a second language. So music reading is also a form of cognitive intelligence. So you need to learn your music reading as well, your sight reading, your music notation per se, but you also need the words that you use to describe music to be developed. And that's your cognitive intelligence. That's basically everything that I'm sharing with you today. It's all because it's all based in words and concepts. It's all part of your cognitive intelligence. We've also got emotional intelligence. So how many different emotions has music made you feel? Could you write them all down? Could you describe what emotion each kind of music is speaking to? Are you aware of how many sorts of emotions you have? Are you aware when you have very strong emotions? Maybe there's a lack of strong emotions in your life and your music practice is a bit, is it, is a bit flat and you want to have more emotion in it. So make sure you have some emotional intelligence with your practice. We've also got aesthetic intelligence. So this is more about how you put things together in a pleasing way. So this is your music composition, for example. It taps into your intuition. You need to develop this by being involved in the music scene. For example, a jazz musician can learn how to improvise phrases instinctively because of their years of absorbing phrases from other great jazz musicians and listening to records and going to gigs. I've also got here interpersonal intelligence. So this is your ability to socialize and relate to other people. 
Most music careers offer many opportunities to meet a glorious number of people. How you navigate your social community is a factor to your music. We can't kid yourself about that. Don't joke about that or don't downplay that. Bands have been torn apart by differences of opinion. And conversely, incredible music has been born from friendships. Be sensitive to how people feel and react to the things you say. Take note of what sort of words and phrases are used in certain settings, especially when you're new to the environment and you're the new person. Status anxiety, jealousy, envy, inferiority, and embarrassment are the dark side of the social world. You need to master your psychology to deal with all of these potential hang-ups as they can greatly diminish your enthusiasm to make music in certain settings. People are complex, unique, and unpredictable. This is what makes them an amazing opportunity to bring more richness to life. Every new person you meet is a whole new world waiting to be discovered. Everyone has a history, an ideal, fears, hopes, just as you do. The more you can understand yourself, the more you can understand someone else. So at the end of the day, it's really up to you to be aware of how you're responding and acting in social situations. Do you notice that sometimes when you start a band, it's just easy to start the band. Some musicians, especially if they're more experienced with you, will just go with it. The music will happen. There's no gossip. There's no drama. There's no tension. There's no things where they say, oh, it wasn't quite like this, or it should have been like this, or it wasn't quite satisfying like this. They're just letting it be. That's a social intelligence. That's an intrapersonal intelligence. And that plays into the quality of your music. It's one of the factors. So another form of intelligence, which I'll mention here, is financial intelligence. So this is how you use your money. Money works in a unique way. It's unlike socializing and unlike music. This is why it's a line of development all unto itself. It's a form of intelligence that's totally unique. Make no mistake about it, money is a factor that has weight on the kind of music you make. Are you coming from a place of desperation? It doesn't take much to learn the basics of the principles of money. Principles like compounding growth, diversifying investments, dollar cost averaging, wealth retention, passive income, these sorts of things, they're easy enough to learn about and can make a world of difference in the long run. Gone are the days when musicians must starve because of a lack of financial education. Don't put yourself into the place of hopelessness because you were too lazy to listen to a few talks on the internet about money. There's so much information and it's really that simple. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to become an entrepreneur and become money-bent. You only need to have a bit of an understanding to make progress with financial intelligence. Please tell me you have a saving habit. Please tell me at least you save some of each paycheck. When you're a musician, pay is not always consistent. So you need to be on the ball with your spendings, your costs, your budgeting, and your savings. Another form of intelligence is existential intelligence. So this is all about holding big concepts in mind and having a big picture understanding of what your place in the world is. 
This will come back to the profundity of your music. If you are feeling like your music practice is flat, put it into a bigger context. Understand that you are expressing something of beauty, of joy. You are a flowering of the universe when you start to make music and you're being creative and you're performing music. If that sounds too fluffy or you can't take that on, that just means you're a bit skeptical about this existential intelligence. Maybe I'm not conveying it well enough. Maybe it takes a bit more of an explanation for us to bridge the gap between the universe and all the stars and the planets and everything in it and you sitting at your instrument, slogging it away, trying to learn your A major scale. The ability to see the connection between those two things is your existential intelligence. And that can be developed. That can be something that you need to keep in mind and it will change and get better if you're aware of it and you're taking the initiative to find out more about it. Okay, so the next line of intelligence I've included here is called learning intelligence. And this is really the holy grail of music practice. If you can keep this in mind, this will really give you good gains for your music practice and it will stop you from getting stuck in slumps. It will stop you from becoming stale. It'll stop you from becoming unmotivated. And you can use this as a framework, not only for your own music practice, but also for band practice. So here, I'd like to make four distinctions. This will be very powerful for conceptualizing your progress. First, there is learning music. Second, there is practicing music. Third, there is playing music. And finally, there is performing music. So we've got learning, practicing, playing, and performing. Learning music is what you are doing when you start a new piece. You're starting with a brand new piece of music you've never seen before and you're trying to familiarize yourself with it. You have no idea how it sounds and you're struggling just to make your way into the first few measures. With persistence, you can gain a rough understanding of how the piece goes. And then you'll even be able to make your way through it without mistakes. But there's a difference between knowing a piece and really knowing a piece. To really know a piece, it takes practice. So you're no longer learning the piece, you know what it sounds like, and then you move into practice. So practice involves huge amounts of repetitions, permutations, the ironing out of weak spots, and a relentless digging into the details of a piece. This is the grind of learning music or music development. So you've got learning and you've got practice. And practice is the bulk of what you do with music development. Don't expect it to be fun. Don't expect it to come easy. Learning is the hardest part. Practice is probably the second hardest part, but takes the longest. It still is unfamiliar stuff becoming familiar to you. This is the discipline process. This is the discipline of music. Once you've practiced a piece long enough, you'll be able to play it. So this is more of a lightness to it. It's a playfulness to it. You should learn to notice the difference in the feeling between practice and playing. Playing is fun and it's joyous. It's the reward of music. You can be relaxed and jolly about it. But play becomes stale without practice and learning. 
if you always play, then you're just being lazy and you'll lose the details. You'll lose the, the thick, the juiciness to it. It's easy to always want to play music and to never practice. It may appear on the surface that advanced musicians only ever play music, but that's probably more like that they've learnt to practice and learn. Do that. They do that learning practice process much quicker. You can also never know what they've done in the background and how much practice they've really done. So playfulness is the playing of music. And if you practice enough playing will naturally come out of it and sometimes it might sneak up onto you. you you'll be practicing and then you'll get lost in the music you'll get taken away on it and you'll think wow wow we're doing it we're going it's happening and then the final stage is music performance so performance is distinctly different from playing music performance has its own factors to consider it's a lot more complex and it's a lot more refined Basically, the only way to improve your performance skills is through experience. Don't expect any good performances without a strong foundation of learning music, practicing music, and playing music. Performance sometimes can be playful and open, but it's also formal. You need to be, in a sense, restrictive of your playfulness when you're on the bandstand. So these four distinctions can be used to workshop a band. Know what point the band is at when it's learning a piece. If it's first getting into touch with the piece, you'll need to be learning it. And then when you're going through it, the band might be able to play all the way through it, but they need to practice it. That's the rehearsal. That means ironing out of the difficult parts. You might concentrate just on a complicated part of the song. And then you'll need to be more playful. You need to say, look, let's just play through this song and let's be a bit more open about it. And then you'll be ready for music performance. So performance intelligence is even yet another line. So all of that was learning intelligence. And we can divide performance intelligence again. So how you dress on stage, how you interact with the audience, how you act between tunes, what sort of banter you have, all this sort of stuff is performance intelligence. So be aware that need, this needs to be developed. And you can always ask your older musicians what they do. And look at what professional musicians do between songs and how they talk to their audience and these sorts of things. So these are all lines of development. I hope that's not too much of a brain fry. And I hope that gives you something to keep in mind. Now you can write these in your music diary. And just keep them in mind. You don't really even need to practice them. Some of them you can develop specifically. Some of them you just need to keep in mind and they will naturally happen to you. You'll naturally be able to develop them through experience if you just keep reminding yourself, oh yeah, music intelligence. Oh yeah, cognitive intelligence. Oh yeah, performance intelligence. Every time you go to a performance, you just keep that in mind and you'll be able to have more ideas about it. Now, the next section that I like to go through, I've called time and space. So the sense of time that a musician has and their sense of pulse is central to music making. So there's two kinds of time. We call it inside time and outside time. So outside time is generated in the world. It's generated in the 
thing that you can see with your eyeballs. So this is your metronome or your drum machine or your backing track. And then inside time is your internal sense of time, your internal metronome. You develop your inside time by practicing with your metronome. The more you practice with your metronome, your outside time, the better developed your internal time will be. Now, when you're on the bandstand, you realize that the metronome actually doesn't exist. Beats don't exist. There's no magic place in the ether where the true beat is. Beats are only generated by musicians and the space between their notes. So when someone says they're playing behind the beat or ahead of the beat or on the beat, these sorts of things, it's only in relation to the other musicians in the band. It is possible to develop your sense of time so much that you can make a metronome sound like it's slowing down. You can make the metronome sound like it's behind. So elasticity, forward momentum, and time generation is all about having your internal time developed via your external time. So the other thing I'll say is that time is generated by the distance between two events. So it's the distance between two notes, the consistency of your pulse, the consistency of the notes in your phrases. So micro events, which would be like a small phrase, need to be put in relation to macro events, which might be your solo. So you might have the notes within a phrase, and those notes are related to the phrase, and then you have the phrase related to a sequence of phrases or a form or a measure. Well, not a measure, it would be more like an entire form or a section of the music. And then that section of the music will be related to the entire piece. And then, of course, you can even go again, which is the piece of music in relation to the set of music. So if you're doing set list writing, this actually comes back to time and space. Is it a fast song or is it a slow song? Well, if you really want it to be a super fast song, you'd put a slow song before it because it's all relative to how it is in relation to the events. So think more about time and space, and I hope that's given you a, a few ideas. So the next section I'd like to talk about, or the next topic I'd like to talk about, is the kinds of listening and perception. So if you're a musician, you should be developing a multiple number of ways to listen to music. So we've got technical, analytical, emotional, non-judgmental, and ethereal. So technical listening to the music is where you listen to one instrument on the CD or the record and you try and imagine that musician playing that instrument. So you can visualize your fingers on the instrument, on the notes, on the keys. So if they're a piano player, you can see what notes on the piano are being moved up and down. If you're a string player, you know if they're doing a downstroke or an upstroke and what string they're on. This is technical listening to music. You try and visualize as closely as you can yourself doing that instrument. So you can do this with multiple instruments, but usually you focus on your own instrument. You can even imagine yourself playing your instrument, but the notes of another instrument. So you might be listening to a saxophone 
but you can visualize your notes on the piano or on the violin or whatever it is that you play. So the next form of listening is analytical thinking. So this is where you have your music theory being put onto the music. So you'd say that was a G chord or a dominant chord or that was a turn in the phrase that is usually like a cadence or that was the end of a section, this was the start of a form, that was a superimposition, that was a counterpoint baseline, these sorts of things. It's analytical thinking. This is what you would write if you were doing a music exam and listening to the music. And then we've got emotional listening. So this is the drama of the music. And technical listening and analytical thinking is completely useless for your emotional listening. So what is the emotion trying to speak to? Is it sad? Is it depressing? Is it happy? Is it lively? Is it joking? Is it uh, surprising? These sorts of things. And usually emotional listening is good when it takes you by surprise. This is what most people listen to music for is the emotion. Are you in love or are you experiencing a breakup? This sort of stuff. You need to be aware of this as a musician. Now, sometimes it's not always an overtly plain emotion. Emotions such as happy, sad, in love, broken heart, these sorts of things are very cheesy emotions. They're very plain. They're general. They're generally speaking quite obvious. If you have a greater degree of emotional intelligence and complexity, you can have subtle emotions. You can have emotions which you can't label. You can have new emotions which you've never had before. So be aware of emotional listening. And really, you should be able to do this with all kinds of music. Even if you're at the shops and you hear some pop music that you usually wouldn't like, you might go, uh, here's the technical listening, here's the analytical listening. And most musicians, if they listen to pop music, they'll think, well, that's really boring. But then you can say, well, let's listen to the emotion of it and let's be a bit more open about it. So another form of listening is non-judgmental listening. So this is where you don't necessarily be technical, analytical or emotional, but you just say, what is happening to me as I'm listening to this? I'm not going to try and put the music into a box because these aforementioned forms of listening can be a little bit restrictive. Non-judgmental listening is saying, let me just take all of it as it is. You're listening more to the general sound, the overall sound, and you're noticing your response to it. You're seeing what's happening within your field of awareness as the music is happening. So being non-judgmental is completely different to technical and analytical listening. And you can develop the two. If you only have technical listening, then you'll become rigid in your thinking and you'll forget how to listen to the music as you first heard it. Do you ever think, oh, I wish I could hear this music in the same way that it felt and sounded the very first time that I heard it? That album that you love and you've listened to hundreds of times... Wouldn't it be great if you could put it on as if you'd never heard it before? Well, that's non-judgmental thinking. That's non-judgmental listening. You can develop that and you can become more open to that and that will allow you to have more non-judgmental experiences. 
The last form of listening that I've listed here is ethereal listening or grand listening. And that takes the non-judgmental listening even bigger. It goes even further. You can say that music is this one thing that is isolated within your awareness and you can open up to bigger awareness, awareness of other things that is happening, but it can also become the totality of your awareness. It can fill your awareness. So the ethereal listening is when you become the music. The music is everything that is happening at the moment. So it's really loud. There's nothing else. You're completely absorbed in it. This is best done for live music when you're sitting real close to the band and it's your favorite band. It's very rare to be able to be totally engulfed in the music. So make sure you keep that in mind and you allow that to happen when the rare opportunities come up for you to do that. So these kinds of listening, you can make up your own. You don't have to just be technical, analytical, emotional, non-judgmental and ethereal. You can come up with other forms and start dividing your sense of perception of hearing into different things. And you can even use this for sight as well and taste. But that's another tangent for another day. The other thing I'll quickly mention here is the development of relative pitch. So if you are a musician, you need to be working on your intervals, your chord recognition, and your note, ne- your note recognition, your tuning. Is it in tune? Is it out of tune? These sorts of things. That is a component of music practice. Don't forget about that. So the next major section I'd like to go through is values. So this is great for writing in your music diary. And you can develop this over time. This will change over time. And this will be like, what words summarize your attitude towards music? Now, when we have values, you need to understand that they are context bound. So they will change and they all bear different fruits. They all have different outcomes. So you'll need to be developing this and changing this around. For example, you might have values like patience or effortlessness or accuracy. So if you say accuracy is one of your values, you say, no, I'm going to play the music correctly. I'm going to play it rightly. I'm going to do it as the music says, to the letter, to the T, no matter what. And I'm always going to hold accuracy as one of my values for all my music. Subtlety, beauty, humility, non-attachment. So you can see these things are foundational. They're more of a general attitude. If beauty is your value, then you can't really put that into a tangible practice routine. You can't really practice beauty. But if you keep it in your mind at certain times, you can use that as like a true north or a guiding principle by saying, is this a beautiful piece of music? Do I really find beauty in this? If I develop this piece of music or this composition or I learn this piece of music, is it going to be beautiful to me? Yes or no depends on how much you can invest in that piece of music. The other thing I'll say about values is you should be understanding that there is an opposite to them. For example, pride is not necessarily a good thing. Pride and humility go hand in hand. Pride can be creating of blind spots and you can be in denial about your 
inabilities as a musician if you have too much pride. But on the other hand, you can have too much humility, and that can be crushing of your self-esteem. If you're always putting yourself down, then that might be indicative of a self-esteem issue rather than a true humility, which is the recognition of how beautiful music is and how powerful music can be. Other values you should look out for are success. So success is a byproduct. Don't strive for success. Putting the pressure of needing to be successful on your music practice can be very destructive. And maybe that's tied in with financial intelligence. Another value to be aware of is prestige. So recognition from your scene, from your fellow musicians, is another byproduct. You really need to put prestige and recognition out of your mind because that can be very destructive to your motivation. This is your status anxiety. This is your comparing yourself to others. This comes back to your jealousy and your envy. Prestige can wither away and erode all of your self-esteem and your motivation for music practice. So be careful when you're thinking about, be aware of when you're thinking about prestige. And then the last value that I'll mention here, remember you can come up with your own, you'll be developing these. There's a whole hundreds of lists of values or higher values that you can learn about. But the last one I'll mention here is gratification. So gratification is an interesting one because it depends on what is being gratified as to how fulfilling it is. So when you have a gig and you say, wow, that was a really good gig, make note of why it is that you felt that it was good. You can gratify your ego. You can gratify your identity. You can gratify yourself as someone, as, as you're seeing yourself as someone skillful or someone exciting. And you can gratify yourself emotionally. And even it's possible to gratify yourself existentially. So when you have music which is going off into the universe, that's quite a big leap. That's quite hard to understand if you don't have an understanding of existential intelligence. But there are different levels of gratification. Bodily gratification is different to existential gratification. Identity gratification is different to emotional gratification. So gratification as a value is an interesting one. And remember, you can have delayed gratification to improve meaning, to improve the quality of your music. Making sure you are learning music, practicing music and refining your music is a form of delayed gratification to make sure that your music performance is of a higher quality. So really a music performance is the flowering, it's the gratification, and it takes delayed gratification to get there. So the next section in integral music practice is types of musicians. So if you're familiar with psychology personality types, this comes from the Enneagram. And there are a lot of different models of types of musicians. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but the other one is archetypes, such as the mother or the father or the king or the jester. These sorts of characters have a collection of characteristics to them and they act in a certain way. 
So keep these types of people, types of musicians in mind when you're interacting with other people and be careful to see this in yourself. These aren't necessarily things that you take on or reject. They're simply tentative things that you take on and you understand as your role as a musician, how you function as a musician. So, type of musician number one, the show-off, otherwise known as the achiever. The show-off is full of themselves. They want everyone to know how good they are, and they often really are actually that good. Music is many things, but it crosses over a lot with showbiz. Every musician has a mix of accompanist and soloist within him or herself. Achievement is an important value, or it can be an important value, and it can work wonders to help with your personal motivation, but keep it in its place. Excellence is only one virtue out of many that needs to be understood. Know when it's okay to show off, wait for that opportune moment, and then you'll really have the audience in a roar. There is also a difference between music excellence and career excellence. Often these are two differing things. So the show-off is all about excellence, but in a sort of dirty way. Well, it's up to you to decide how the show-off is good or bad, but it can be done in a, in a dirty way, in a cheeky way. And that's the sort of show where you go into and you say, wow, that musician really was good, but it was a little bit alienating. They weren't very encompassing. I wish they could play a little bit more lyrical or a little bit more poetic. So the next type of musician is the individualist. So the individualist is all about being unique. They can be eccentric and dramatic and expressive. They like to feel a range of emotions and they get caught up in their identity. These can be great qualities in certain music settings, but like all qualities, they can be counterproductive if too dominant. Individuals can be easily offended and don't always take critical feedback well. So if you're an individualist, you might have feedback from your teacher and you'll take it personally, or you'll deny that it actually is valid feedback and it will hurt you. You need to distance yourself from your music. There needs to be some level of detachment from it. And you can say, well, I made that music, but that's not who I am. And actually, Sort of paradoxically, by having that detachment, you end up making better music. So, another type of musician is the challenger. So, it may seem sometimes that your teacher is being hard on you, especially if you're an individualist. It might seem like they're being confrontational and unrelenting in forcing you to play music better. Learn to recognize this, though, as tough love. Most music teachers don't put any more effort into the student than the student is ready for. If a teacher can see a potential in you that isn't being utilized, they may be hard on you out of a place of wanting the best for you. There is a minuscule of cases where the teacher is always just hard because they, are, they have a power complex, but there's not really that much, I don't think. Most people are not dominating of others. Be honest with yourself and ask if this teacher is being hard on you for the good reasons, for the right reasons. Often you'll find your teacher knows better than you, despite what you might think. Your teacher is more experienced than you. You have to admit that. And if they're being hard on you, it might just be that they are a challenger and that they care about your development. 
So other types of musicians or sorts of personality types that you should be aware of is introversion and extroversion. So introverts are a lot more quiet, a lot more self-absorbed, and people who are extroverts are much more open, much more flamboyant, much more social. Understand that everybody has introversion and extroversion in them, so you need to balance these two. It's not about one or the other. Don't make an identity out of one or the other. Know when to use each one effectively. And the same goes for feminine and masculine. If you're a musician, you're probably on the way to developing a good relationship between the feminine and the masculine. Because the feminine side of music is the emotional, it's the poetic, it's the dramatic side of it, it's the tender side of it. And the masculine side of it is the performance of it, it's the putting out, it's the look at me, I'm the show off side of it. And you need the two together to be having a flowering of music. So understand feminism. Well, not feminism, that's a social movement. So forget about feminism as a social ideology. And just think of what it means to be feminine. And masculinity, or I don't know if there's a social movement for the males. I don't know much about that. But just understand the differences in feminine and masculine for yourself. Forget about ideologies and social movements. Another kind of musician is the charmer. So this is about seduction. So there's many forms of personality that are to do with seduction. You might have the dandy, or you might have the witty, or you might have the comedian. The charmer is someone who's trying to seduce the audience. They're trying to get them on board. They're trying to involve them. So this is the want to have an emotional effect on someone else. And this is obvious in musicians because if you're making music, you probably want to have an emotional effect on your audience. And the last type of person, type of musician that I'll mention here, is probably the most important one out of all the ones that I've mentioned so far. So make sure you listen carefully to this one. This one is the fool. You will never learn anything unless you are willing to be a fool. The number one thing that stops people from learning is their inability to confront their ignorance. This factor is followed closely by thinking you already know. But basically, you don't want to have a fear of looking foolish. The quickest way to make progress in your musical development is to be willing to be made a fool of. It will be painful at first, but with more experience of coming into contact with your ignorance and lack of ability, you will get better. Dealing with foolishness is a skill unto itself, which is critical for overall growth and development. Don't mix this up with clumsiness. Don't create a clumsiness complex because you think you are being foolish by learning. And don't publicly humiliate yourself on purpose or humble yourself inauthentically in order to play the fool. The fool is a personal thing. It's an intimate thing and you shouldn't make it as a part of your interactions with anyone really other than someone who is 
teaching you or someone you can learn from. Be aware of an interaction with another musician or a person as something that can be an opportunity to learn something. If you are going to be learning something, they will look bigger than you in one sense. They will look more knowledgeable than you. You will look the fool. So make sure you are aware of the ability to play the fool when it's appropriate. Now, the fool ties in nicely with my next major section. So this is one of the chapters or the next major component of integral music practice. And I've called this, you are your own worst enemy. This is the dark side of music. And this is shadow work. This is known in psychology as shadow work. And we're applying this to music practice. So do you know, maybe you've spoken to a famous musician after a concert, or there's a famous quote by, I think it's Michelangelo. And they say that something along the lines of, the greatest skill in life is not to master your craft or your instrument or music, but it's to master yourself. It's to master your self-knowledge. And you go, wow, that's profound. That guy is a heavy musician or that guy's a heavy artist. I need to master my life, not master my instrument. Well, shadow work is the way of doing that. Shadow work is the steps you need to actually go about doing that and saying, well, that's very profound. That's very nice to be profound. But how do I do that? What's the practical application of that insight? So you don't want to be a master of your instrument. You want to be a master of yourself, of your life. And shadow work is the way to do that. This is the thing that stops you from making music. This is the thing that holds you back from music creativity, music practice, learning music, playing music, performing music. It's you. You realize it's all nested in you. Your music doesn't come from anywhere else than you. It's not like there's music written on a piece of paper that only you can play. The music doesn't make sound from that paper until you start playing it. So you are your own worst enemy. This is war within yourself. Now, here are the components of shadow work. You've got resistance, suppression, addiction, withdrawals, and integration. These aren't all the aspects, but these are the ones that I think are relevant to music practice for today. So ignorance is the shock of coming into your understanding. Ignorance is the shock of these points, resistance, suppression, addiction, withdrawals, and integration being pushed against you. It's the birthing of these things. Ignorance is the changing of yourself in order to adapt to these things. Your shadow is your ignorance. And your shadow work is your coming out of your ignorance. So you need to find the things that you don't know about. You need to find the things that are wrong with you that you don't know how to say they are wrong with you. So resistance is pushing against the natural tendency to evolve. So evolution naturally wants to expand and improve. If you resist the emergence of a higher wave of development, a higher skill, a higher ability... 
That's your shadow talking. Now, why would you do that? Why would you want to do that? Well, it comes down to conditioning. It comes down to your complex. For example, your teacher might give you something to work on. They might point out a blind spot or a weakness in your playing. And you might subconsciously be wanting to learn about it, but you'll put up resistance because it might clash with your self-image. You might see yourself as a proud musician or have a pride complex. So resistance is pushing against the higher level, the higher skill, the better nature of yourself. Next, we have suppression. So this is denying the lower part of yourself. This is denying the part of you that is already happening, denying, suppressing a lower level that you need to use correctly in order to evolve to higher waves of development. So if you have a problem, you develop a skill to deal with that problem, but if you don't develop the skill correctly, the problem won't go away. So anything that you haven't dealt with properly, that you've needed to deal with in terms of your experience of life and experience of music, and you're denying this, that's suppression. So for example, you might have learnt a piece of music or a style or a component of music, but you can't play it properly. You didn't learn it fully. You didn't learn all of the components of it. But you tell yourself you did learn it properly, and then you push it out of your awareness because you're too proud or you're, you've got a pride complex about how good you are and how you already know enough there is to know about that thing. Suppression is pushing it and denying it and skimming over it every time it comes up. But that skill, that problem, will keep bubbling up to the surface and becoming this thing that you need to suppress. It takes energy to suppress it, to deny it, because it it clashes with your self-image. It clashes with your idea of yourself. And that's the drama of coming out of ignorance. So if you have enough suppression and resistance, you can form an addiction. So addiction is overacting something that you have already had in a futile attempt to move evolution forward. So this is a persistence in something that isn't working. It's a conditioning, an expectation that you condition into yourself of something that you need to do repeatedly to take care of your suppression and take care of your resistance. So in order to keep your your suppressions suppressed, and your resistances resisted, you'll have an addiction. Things will change naturally and flow naturally, and you move in and out of skills and feelings if you have no suppression and resistance. There won't be any addiction. You'll start doing things, you'll amalgamate them, and then you'll stop doing them, or you'll integrate them. So next we have withdrawals. So withdrawals is what happens when you have the reconditioning of an addiction or a habit. So if you recognize an addiction, you'll stop doing it and you'll allow your suppression to come up and that will be painful. That's the pain of withdrawals. And if you allow the pain to happen and you learn to recognize the pain, you'll be able to move out of your ignorance and out of the habit of the addiction. So learning to recognize painful feelings 
as withdrawals from addictions is key to coming out of ignorance. Complexifying your relationship to awkward feelings or bad feelings, painful feelings, is key to your progress. Because coming out of ignorance is painful. Withdrawals are painful. But they're a key component to ridding yourself of suppression and resistance, which is the thing that holds you back from progress. If you have no addictions, no suppression, no resistance, you will progress naturally. Your learning will flow. It will be easy to learn things. You won't have effort behind it. You won't have struggle behind it. You won't have difficulty to it. You'll be simply going along at a pace which is natural. You won't have any of these impulses and this compulsive music practice which causes stress and anxiety to you. So the last component of shadow work is integration, which is using these correctly and sparingly, knowing where you are evolving to and where you are evolving from, recognizing these feelings. And when you have an emotion or a feeling when you're practicing, just ask yourself, is there resistance, suppression, addiction, or withdrawals happening here? It is actually possible to be addicted to music. Music can be something that you are using to suppress things and resist things, your own psychological development as a human being. But music can also be a conveyor belt. You can actually use music to become enlightened, to become more psychologically developed. Sort of like religion. Just a little quick tangent here about religion. Religion can cause you to be deluded about yourself. It can cause you to be dogmatic. It can cause you to do actions which are terrible for yourself and your society. But in other forms, religion can help you develop, help you learn, help you grow, expand your awareness, and it can be a conveyor belt of development. What the differences are is this awareness of shadow work. It's this awareness of the distinctions of resistance, suppression, addiction, and withdrawals and learning to integrate those. The other note that I'll mention here is that there's a paradox between regimented practice and open practice. For each exercise you do in your music practice, ask yourself what the restriction is and what the freedom is. So for example, you might practice one thing for as long as you'd like, or you might practice a few things within a restricted time frame. So it's different components of freedom and restriction, but the cycle of things might be more free, depending on what the components are. Practice that is totally regimented and restrictive can be a form of suppression and resistance, but practice that is totally open and free might also be a denial of something that needs work. So keep that in mind when you're forming your practice routine. So the next major section that I'd like to talk about is states of mind. So this is a big part of integral theory is your states of consciousness, states of mind. And these are the different ways that you think or the different ways that you experience. There's a few different categories that I'd like to outline. So here are a few of the different states of mind or states of consciousness that are relevant to 
music practice and the music experience. Focused, flow, open, peak, and religious. So focused mode is when you're concentrating. This is when you're excluding things from your concentration and narrowing your view, your point of attention. You want to have a sharp point of attention and just do one thing. Flow is all about the, well, it's like a river. It's like flowing. Well, there's two components to flow, constant and change. There's got to be a constant change to have flow. One thing leads to another, which leads to another thing. And it becomes this rolling thing which happens over and over again. And then we've got open. So open is the opposite of focused. Open is allowing anything to happen, accepting things, letting the music flow where it wants to happen and not being restrictive in your attention. Being more about a field of awareness and opening and enlarging your field of awareness rather than having a point or a consistency. So open is distinctly different to focused and flow. So next we have peak or climax. So peaks happen contextually. You might have the peak of a song. You might have the peak of the show. You might have the peak of your career. And you'll only know if it's a peak by what happens before and after it. So after a peak, there's a come down or there's a hangover. So be aware of when things are building to a peak. And you can actually develop climaxes in and of themselves. Now, not all music is climactic in the sense that it goes up and there's a top and then you go down and there's a bottom. Sometimes the peak performance might still sound very much like a straight long thing. It's more like a plateau, but still relative to your other performances or your other gigs or shows, it's a peak performance. Now, the last state of consciousness that I've included here is religious. Now, this has nothing to do with religion. Don't get this caught up with religion. It's not a theory of the world. It's not about a man in the cloud. It's not about a book like the Bible. It's not about Jesus or any of that. The religious experience is those few times in your life where you really felt rapture and ecstasy. So focused mode, you might use for your practice. Flow mode, you would use for when you're playing music or having a bit more fun with music. Open mode is when you're brainstorming creative ideas or you're improvising and you're being spontaneous. And then peaks and climaxes, they're all relative. They're sort of, you might have a little peak here or a big peak there, or you might say, wow, that was a really big peak. Or you have those in degrees and you have lots of them. You have lots of peaks. You can have lots of peaks each, each day or each gig. The religious experience is that total ecstasy moment which you can count you can count only a few of those on your hand for your entire life so the religious experience you need to be aware of you can never plan for them you can never practice for them religious the religious experience comes to you from somewhere else 
irregardless of your beliefs about God or the universe or anything like that. It's an experience. These are the moments that really make you feel alive with the music. And you can't do anything to practice or instigate them. But you do have to be aware of when they can happen, that they can happen. You need to always have in the back of your mind, especially when you're performing, that a religious experience can happen to you. So make sure you keep that in mind and make sure you are open enough to let that peak break through into the religious experience. So these are states of mind or states of consciousness that you can be aware of. Make sure you're using them in their right place because they all have their own strengths and weaknesses and they all have their own ways of being developed. So I hope all of this gives you some ideas of where to go to next. If you want to expand your integral music practice even further, then I suggest you understand more about integral theory and psychology in general. A good way to do that is just to understand the personal development side of integral theory. And I'll suggest some books in a moment that you can read to follow up that. This is by no means a comprehensive introduction to integral theory. There are still lots of ideas like spiral dynamics and developmental psychology and devotion and the perennial philosophy and stoic philosophy. These are all things that we can use as components in relation to our music practice. I think what we've talked about so far today is enough to get started. So make sure you're doing your meditation. Meditation every day is critical. That is a key component of everything that you're doing. Make sure you're doing body development and body ability. You only need to do 10 minutes of exercise a day to help with that. Make sure you're aware of your lines of intelligence, your cognitive intelligence, your emotional intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, socializing, your financial intelligence, and your existential intelligence, and your learning intelligence. So learning intelligence is a big one because remember you've got learning music, practicing music, playing music, and performing music. And then, of course, you've also got your performance intelligence. Make sure you're working on your time and space, inside time and outside time. Make sure you've got multiple forms of listening, technical listening, analytical listening, emotional listening, non-judgmental listening, and ethereal listening. Make sure you're developing your values, patience, effortlessness, accuracy, beauty, humility, and these you should really come up with yourself for. These are just examples that really depends on you and your personality as to what values you want to uphold. And then you've got types of musicians, the show-off, the individualist, the challenger, introversion and extroversion, feminine and masculine, the charmer, the seductive type, and of course the fool. Make sure you are aware of being the fool. And then you've got your shadow work. So make sure you are aware of where you are ignorant. Be aware of the pain of coming out of your ignorance. Resistance, suppression, addiction, withdrawals, and the integration of all these things. And then you've also got what we were just speaking about a minute ago, your states of consciousness or your states of mind, your focused, your flow, your open state of mind, your peaks, your climaxes, and those rare moments which we call the religious experience. 
So every day you're meditating, you're working out, you're practicing your instrument. At least once a week, you're doing shadow work, psychology development, and your theory development. And if you want to know more about these sorts of ideas, then you can read the book Integral Life Practice by Ken Wilber. And if you want a general introduction to integral theory, you can read A Brief History of Everything by Ken Wilber. There are also books like Mastery by Robert Greene or This Is Your Brain on Music by David Levitin that can help with your music practice. If you are a hardcore psychology philosophy studier person, philosophia person, then you can get into the book Sex, Ecology, Spirituality by Ken Wilber. It's about 500 pages long and it's really dense. So if you want the full dose of integral theory, buy that one. But probably if you're not big on psychology, you need to start with a more basic introduction. So let's get cracking right in your practice diary. Some of the ideas you've got from here and then keep developing it on your own terms. I hope that's helped with some ideas and I hope that gets the ball rolling. Thanks very much for tuning in. This episode is dedicated to Edibubi. I highly doubt he's going to listen to this. <laughs> he's probably too busy practicing music, but that's okay. Edibubi, if you've listened this far, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> and for everyone else listening, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Have beautiful music experiences. And that's all I have to say for now.